The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, unions at Dublin Bus today told management to make a new offer if strike action is to be averted at the end of the month. Now, that comes against the backdrop of the NBRU and SIP2 agreeing to suspend voting in a disputed Irish rail in order to attend three days of talks at the Workplace Relations Commission that began earlier on today. So what's the deal with so much ongoing industrial disputes, particularly in our transport sector? Well, I'm delighted to be joined on the programme now by Gerald Flynn, Industrial Relations Consultant with Align Management Solutions. Gerald, you're very welcome to the programme. Hello, Tara. What is it about the transport sector in particular? It seems almost as if every year there is at least a threat of strike action amongst whether it's earlier this year we had Lewis uh, Bus. It seems to be almost a yearly thing as with Irish Rail as well. Well, a lot has to do with the fact that uh, SIP2 wasn't called the transport union for nothing because that's essentially uh, its core was organising transport. And secondly, of course, um, there's a major split in the union uh, movement between SIP2 and the National Bus and Rail Union, uh, which broke away many years ago, over 50 years ago, from uh, the Transport and General Workers Union. So you have a certain competitive militancy between them. Now, added to that, we have this is kind of these disputes are really heirs to the uh, bitter four month long Lewis dispute. And the bus drivers have uh, ambitious pay claims in to try and bring them up to the same earnings as they perceive that the Lewis drivers are earning at the top of the scale. And of course, we had a real game of, of chicken over the Lewis dispute just a couple of months ago. Remind us of, mm. of what the Lewis and um, there were, I think it was. The word audacious was was thrown around at the time. They were looking for in the region of a 50% pay well, increase. That's, a that's value not what they judgment, got. Audacious. Ambitious might be a more polite term. They um, were looking for an average of a 40% uh, increase over slightly unspecified, maybe four, four and a half years. And... Um, uh, up to a maximum of about 54%. That was interesting because around the end of March, they uh, rejected a deal that provided roughly 18% over about six years. And eventually, after another seven weeks, they settled on a lesser deal. So uh, that's interesting in Ireland because sometimes trade union members feel that the longer they drag it out, the better the final agreement will be. So the Lewis was a lesson, but that was partly because it's a private sector company, uh, Transdev, that operates on a contract to the National Tra- um, Transport Authority. And that was the the union's assertion at that point in time was that it was a private company and that it was doing very well financially and that therefore the, the, the claim was deserved and, and could be afforded. What makes it different then when we're with talking about Irish Rail and Dublin Bus? Because, of course, they're not privately run companies. Well, there's a bit of a knock on. The Lewis uh, guys uh, were basically saying they wanted a parity with the uh, Ian Road Air and mainline um, drivers. Then the bus uh, people came in very quickly and said, well, we're basically doing the same job as the Lewis tram drivers on buses uh, rather than on tracks. So we would like the same as well. But they are a little bit different. Anyway, they went to the Labour Court and the Labour Court recommended 8.75 over three years, which is just a little bit under the uh, norm at the moment, which is 2 to 3% most uh, people are getting in large organisations in annual pay rises. 
Um, mind you, there are a lot of uh, experiencing pay freezes for years and years. Yeah. But those who are getting pay rises are getting about that. The uh, SIP2 claim was rather ambitious for all grades um, and it was for 15% over three years plus 6% they claim uh, from before the crash. So that is... Um, 21% or and an ambitious does, 7% a year. What does that equate to in terms of driver salaries? Well, obviously, you have to factor in shift premia and things like that. But roughly, they're on about 37, 38,000 and they want to get up to about 42,000, which the Lewis guys have. But there, there's scope for... Um, more f- well, firstly, they had a fairly resounding rejection by both the NBRU and SIP2 of the Labour Court recommendation. The next step then was to have a ballot which was meant to conclude today uh, for industrial action. They suspended that ballot to allow for a few days of talks and then their official Owen Reedy basically said, we will be willing to discuss productivity measures. Though they're already claiming 6% for what they call past productivity but that's a bit like eating bread. It's soon forgotten. Yeah. You can't negotiate on past productivity too easily. Uh, now, I've watched this from the vantage point of, of working in a newsroom in, in this country for over 20 years. There is a pattern with disputes, I think, as in every summer or just before back to school time or at critical points in time of the year, be it Easter, be it a bank holiday weekend. In the case of Aer Lingus in the past, it was always every summer. It's always at a critical point in terms of the delivery of service and the passengers that will be affected, that the unions seem to strike out and, and, and raise their issues and, and threaten strike. Yeah, well, I mean, you wouldn't expect Christmas tree harvesters to go on strike in July, you know. I mean, you have to hit where the iron is hot when it's most effective, I should think. Um, the problem with the transport unions is they alienate public support very, very quickly. And our transport services, especially in um, our cities, is poor enough as it is. Our fares rank among some of the highest in Europe. So there may not be that great sympathy uh, especially if people are looking for a 7% pay increase a year when most people would generally be fairly happy at about uh, 25 3% and if they if were getting it. And add into that then that you've had the state buffering the coffers of, of some of these companies as well in recent years well, too. Well, that's, that's a problem, uh, Tara, insofar as the subsidy for um, transport in Ireland is pretty low. It's about 28% for Dublin bus, uh, whereas it would be anywhere from about 55 to 70% in most other European capitals. So we don't, yeah, and our fares are fairly high. So really the burden falls a bit more on the passengers than on the taxpayer. Um, They claim, well, the uh, Dublin bus is coming out of a grim period. Its passenger numbers are up and its revenues are up. But then you could equally argue, well, should that not be... uh, reflected in better fares rather than necessarily in wage increases that seem to be well above the norm. Mm. So these are all the things that are going to be thrashed out at the workplace relations. But then there's going to be probably knock on with Irish Rail as well. So you won't be disappointed even if Dublin buses resolved, (laughs) you'll have Irish Rail to look forward to. And that's another pattern that I have spotted over the years, this merry dance that is gone through in in the days and weeks leading up to a potential strike. You'll have a couple of days at the, at the, as it now is, the WRC uh, these talks will generally go on well into the night. There might be action that's scheduled to take place from midnight or from six in the morning. And commuters are left in limbo uh, while these 11th hour deals are, are struck or not struck. 
Well, that can happen. Uh, the NBRU does have a bit of a reputation for uh, mounting pickets fairly quickly and within a few days then appealing to the minister to kind of get them off the hook. Um, earlier this year, Pascal Donoghue was uh, quite noticeable in not getting involved in the Lewis dispute and it's now going to be uh, up to Shane Ross whether he's likely to get sucked into it or not. But generally, ministers in the last few years don't. Mm. But then, of course, the management aren't free agents because they're under the thumb of the National Transport Authority who set a lot of their budgets and their subsidies. And uh, then there's uh, political pressure. So uh, I think, um, Tara, you will be looking at transport industrial relations issues from now well in towards the end of September. Right in time for everyone uh, who's uh, heading back to school. Uh, Gerald Flynn from Align Management Solutions, thanks very much for joining us. Now we're heading back over to Rio. We were talking to Richie McCormick there a few moments ago. Annalise Murphy was in the water at the time. She's now the proud owner, Richie, of a silver medal. Yeah, Tara, she's literally coming out of the water as I speak to you now. She's uh, just after coming ashore, after gaining silver in the laser radial here at the Olympic Games. Just a fantastic vindication for the last four years' hard work that she has put into this sport. The disappointment that she suffered in London four years ago. Uh, she was very much in contention right throughout the medal race here this afternoon and ends up, after coming home, with the silver medal. I've just been talking to her family down at the beach. Uh, Finn Murphy, her brother, Claudine Murphy, her sister, all absolutely delighted, all very, very emotional, as you might understand. Her mom's just after heading out there as we look on to greet her coming out of the water. Uh, some emotional scenes, lots of ole oles, lots of everybody decked in green, uh, lots of everybody cheering her home. Fist bumps from the boat from Annalise as well as she was out at sea. Her father apparently is actually one of the officials out at sea, so he isn't actually able to uh, to completely join the celebrations at the moment. So he's one of the officials involved in the other races. Uh, so hopefully he's gotten a WhatsApp message out at sea to, to find out that his daughter <laughs> to, to is him, yeah. uh, You mentioned yeah. her mother, Cathy. She's also an Olympian as well. Cathy is a vanguard in this sport. She, you know, she was represented. She, she was one of the first uh, people to compete in this sport when it made it to the Olympic Games in Seoul in 1988. So she's been at the forefront of developing this sport. Uh, there was very, very few women involved in it when Cathy began. So to see her daughter uh, come through two Olympic Games, the second of which has garnered a silver medal, just must be absolutely fantastic for her. Fantastic for the family, and it's just. A brilliant moment for everybody concerned. Absolutely. And, you know, I think well needed on the back of, of what we've been talking about in terms of Irish boxing. Just one final thing, Richie. Uh, you mentioned the horrendous disappointment that Annalise Murphy had in London in yeah. 2012. She was not taking any chances. I believe she spent 128 days in Rio since London. Yeah. She, uh, she put the preparation in, uh, both physically and mentally. There's a lot has gone into this silver medal. There's a lot of work on the water. There's a hell of a lot, of wa- lot more work away from the water has gone in to winning this silver medal this afternoon, Tara. It's just, it's, and it's fantastic vindication for all of that. She's, she's done so, so well to just get back here and to be competing and to be amongst uh, these sailors out here in the marina. So to see her come back in ashore, a silver medalist, is just a fantastic moment for her, a fantastic moment for the family, and dare I say, a pretty decent moment for the country as well. All right, uh, more from Richie on Off the Ball after 7 o'clock this evening. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, it's emerged today that the average worker has only enough in their private pension fund to give them an income of €60 a week. That equates to a daily spend of around €8.50. With Ireland facing an ageing population and inadequate private sector pension coverage 
as well. The Pensions Authority is now calling for reform with proposals aimed at simplifying the private pension scheme. On the line is David Begg, Chairman of the Pensions Authority. David, this actually came up as an item, funnily enough, on this programme last night when I dared to suggest that we needed to have a high birth rate and, and look after parents who were trying to fund childcare because we'd be reliant on those children into the future when it comes to, to private pensions. A number of people texted the show then saying we have our own private pensions we don't need your bloody children and we don't need to be funding their education etc etc I'm sure it'll come as a shock to many of them to learn today that 60 euro a week is the average return they're going to get from that is that low figure David Begg because the financial crash decimated pensions or is it because we're just not investing in private pensions en masse here yeah, well, there are a number of factors, Tara. First of all, I suppose the most important one is that only 47% of people actually have any pension provision outside of the state old age pension, which is extremely serious in itself. Secondly, I think internationally, the climate has been for pensions has been deteriorating for the last 15 years or so. Part of it is demography, as you mentioned there, the fact that, you know, we will have an increasing uh, population, uh, a cohort of the population over 65 uh, living longer, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing, of course, in itself. Uh, But nevertheless, it means effectively that whereas at the moment for every pensioner, there are about five people in the workforce. But by around 2050, that'll change to, you know, there would be two people working for every pensioner. So you can see how the burden can become uh, quite important uh, for intergenerational um, equity considerations in itself. So I think we need to prepare as well as we can for all of this. There have been some other factors too, Tara, which have uh, really affected this fairly seriously. I mean, up to 15 years ago, you know, the bulk of pensions were what are known as defined benefit. And I won't go into all the technical details, but essentially it was the idea that if you worked for an employer for 40 years, you know, you got half pay and you were guaranteed that and you were more or less secure in the knowledge that you would get that. But because of the strain coming on pensions, a lot of employers have closed those defined benefit pension schemes and have transferred to what are called defined contribution. Mm. And that means that you have a pot of money available to you at the, when you retire, but you can only get whatever pension that that money will buy at that stage. Uh, and it mightn't be your half uh, your wages that you might expend. It might, might be considerably less than that. And so there's a lot of that and there's a lot of volatility in capital markets at the moment, which, you know, when affecting interest rates and return on investment and so on. Yeah, but even in even in that, and it was a fairly good explainer that you gave of the difference between defined benefit and defined contribution and the changes as they were and as they are now. It's confusing, David Begg. I mean, can this system, people are just confused by pensions. How can this system be simplified? Do we need... I completely agree with you that it is very confusing and it is very complex, in fact. And that's one of the reasons why the Pensions Authority has issued this consultation document to get people's opinions about this. Because there are, first of all, an enormous number of individual pension, defined contribution pension schemes of the type, the latter type I've just been talking about, there are actually 140,000 of those. The great bulk of them are for one person only. And so they become very costly 
and they become difficult to manage and they become difficult uh, to supervise from a regulatory uh, point of view. And if you compare Ireland to the Netherlands with a population of 16 million, four times the size of ourselves, the Netherlands has about 400 pension schemes. So first of all, I think it would be very desirable if we could rationalise the number of schemes. Also, those schemes are all supposed to have trustees. So you have a huge number of trustees who are responsible for investing people's money. And it's not credible to think that, although these are very good people and, and you know do a really good job for the most part, but having 200,000 trustees potentially, you know, it's not credible to suggest that everybody will be up to speed and know how to do things in terms of investments. And the, the other part of it is, frankly, that there are too many pension products more or less doing the same thing. And it's no wonder people are confused when they see a range of possible pension projects, products that they can buy, but they don't necessarily know which is the best. So we would like to see rationalization in that as well. And in the process of the rationalization, achieve a number of things, achieve better governance, achieve better results, and achieve lower costs. Some of the simplification that you're talking about there, I'm thinking to superannuation, for example, in Australia. Uh, there's a similar scheme, KiwiSaver in New Zealand. If you start work, even if it's 15 and you're a kitchen porter, there's an immediate deduction that comes out of your wages every week or every fortnight that goes to your superannuation or your KiwiSaver pot. That's really where we need to be, is it not, David Begg? I mean, forget this fluting around about trying to increase awareness and help people get a better understanding of pensions. We need a mandatory pension scheme. We do, but they're not mutually exclusive options. I mean, you you can increase the coverage and you can increase the amount of money that people will get through an auto-enrollment scheme, which the Department of Social Protection and the Minister is considering at the moment. Now, that is slightly separate from our remit in the Pensions Authority, which is to regulate the private sector. But I essentially agree with your proposition that this is an essential thing to do. And uh, it is very desirable that it should come in reasonably soon, I think, if at all possible. Well, now, just on, and, on, and on that reasonably soon, I mean, the minister, as you say, may be considering this. This um, from you guys in the Pensions Authority is a consultation document. I remember Seamus Brennan when he was the minister uh, with responsibility for this in the early 2000s, at that point in time, outlining plans for a mandatory pension scheme. You know, that's 16, 17 years ago. It is. And in fact, uh, that was that idea was brought to a fairly reasonably advanced stage in 2006 when the government issued a green paper on pensions. But then what happened, of course, the country was hit by the uh, the crisis from 2007 on. And that had a lot of pretty serious consequences in terms, I suppose, of, of simply the government of the day trying to bail out the ship. Uh, it also meant, of course, a very significant thing that we had the National Pensions uh, Fund, which had been created around 2002 or 2003 as a hedge against a rainy day for public pensions, uh, you know, public old, old age pensions, I mean. And uh, that was wiped out because the the money was paid in to rescue the banks. There was about $22 billion in that at the time, and most of that has already gone. So a lot of the progress that was made was, was really wiped out in that uh, 2007 financial crisis. And it's, you know, re- what, the, what the current government, I guess, are trying to do is to reboot that now, that that acute phase of crisis has passed. 
David Begg, I suppose it's not surprising considering, you, you know, your previous role that you've held that a number of the texts that are, are coming up today are, are concerning private sector pensions as well. I'd just give you a flavour of them. Why is the private sector expected to pay for the ludicrous public sector pensions? The public sector pensions are subsidised by the private sector. They should be ring-fenced and not paid out of general taxation. And then in a a slightly related area. Why do politicians and high-paid civil servants get huge pensions and why some get more than one pension? Private pensions have no security and it's most likely to be worth less than what one is paid into it. Well, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking pretty much exclusively our bit is the um, uh, control and uh, regulation of the private sector. That's our business. That's what I'm into. But, I mean, just on the point, it is, it is important to say a few things about this. There is a considerable public subsidy for private sector pensions as well. I mean, it is worth 2.5 billion a year in tax reliefs, which we shouldn't lose sight of. You know, people should be aware of that. Yeah, and, and that, you know, that's a very good point, but it comes back to awareness again. I mean, I, I'm thinking, do we need to have a proper public awareness campaign here along the lines of the guy at the top of the double-decker bus go and I don't know what a tracker mortgage is? Yeah, well, we certainly do. I mean, we're trying to promote that with this consultation document that we've issued and hopefully people will engage with us. And in fact, uh, on the 12th of September, we would be holding, we do intend to hold a conference in Dublin that people can attend if they want to get more information and find out what we're about and what we're doing. Uh, The problem with pensions tariff, frankly, is this that people don't think of it when they're young. You know, before the age of 45, pensions are boring. It becomes vaguely interesting at 45. At 55, it becomes riveting. But at 55, it's often too late to make the changes that you need to make in your investment strategy in order to provide for your old age. Way that's too, the difficulty. Yeah, way too late. Uh, David Begg, Chairman of the Pensions Authority. And just, you know, that's uh, personally, as, as I said to you, in favour of this superannuation scheme that we have in Australia. The one in New Zealand actually is even better. It allows you to not only pay in, but if you if you need the money, you know, when it comes to buying a house or something else, you can take a certain proportion out as well. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors.ie Michael Conlon being knocked out of the Olympics after losing his quarter-final bantamweight fight with Russia's Vladimir Nikitin by another split decision. The result not going down well with Michael Conlon. He had this to say to RTE Sport immediately after the bout. As here to Olympic gold, my dream's been shattered now. But you know what? I have a big career ahead of me. And these ones, they're known for being cheats. And they'll always be cheats. How much of boxing stinks from the core right there at the top. Furious, I think, uh, is the only word that you can use to describe Michael Conlon in that piece after crashing out of the Rio Olympics. Uh, I'm joined by Brian McKeown now, who's a boxing coach himself. He's a member of the Cavan Boxing Club, uh, where he coached some of our past Olympians. Brian, you're very welcome to the programme. Have uh, Team Ireland just been robbed of another medal? Uh, we've had some dodgy ones already over the last week or so, but uh, I think today was really a kick in the teeth for us all, you know, and for boxing coaches, not not just here in Ireland, throughout the world, like it's time we took a wee step back and have a look at what we're doing because, like, the whole ethos and the the, the whole uh, philosophy of boxing is hit your opponent more than he hits you, and you'll be the winner. Mm. It's not rocket science. Hit, don't be hit. Make sure you score the most, and you're the winner. Yet we're going out here and uh, 
you, you know, we, we've had the best, or we have the best boxers out there at the Olympics now, 24, that have all qualified geographically. They're, all your fights are going to be close contests. They're all going to be tight, and uh, you expect the best judges there. Now, there's been a number of controver- controversial decisions out there, but I, I look back at to the tournament inspector or the, the chief official at it, like, it's his job to assess all the judges, his job to assess who the bad apples are and who the good ones are and to ensure that the bad ones are removed. Now, if, the, if they're able to do this at the Olympic Games in front of the world, like, we, we, we can expect it in the National Stadium. Mm. We can expect it when we go right down to our county championships on a Monday or Tuesday night in the wee hall at the back of the country. You know, the best boxers are not always coming forward. However, in fairness, that team that we sent to the Olympics was the best that we have, and that was a good team. And and so why did it go so horribly wrong then, Brian? I mean, there's a lot being made of the controversy, and what is the actual controversy around all of this? I mean, from and I mean, complete layperson's lay view, in my point of view, you're looking at them, okay, there were some fights that were seemed very, very tight to, you know, the untrained eye like myself. But as you say, it's not rocket science. To win a boxing match, you have to hit more and get hit less. Well, I, I think the whole controversy is, is, is around the judging and the, the judge's view of, of who the winners are, you know, and... Let's be honest, there's an old pals acting operation. These boys are around the world together. Wink, wink, nod, nod, you look after us. And there is a general feeling, and even prior to uh, Rio, there was a general feeling that the medals were already distributed. It was only a matter of certain boxers turning up and we'd get them. Now, maybe that's only hearsay, but, you know, the rumour's not without foundation when you look at it. Well, I now, mean- now, even take a look at that Russian last night. He, he should never have got that decision against the Kazakh. But the night before, the Kazakh, he didn't beat the Cuban. So so it's one controversy after another after another. And you only have to look at Katie's yesterday, you know. Yeah. In terms of, of, uh, of Irish boxing, I mean, do we have to look internally as well? I mean, there was a lot of flux in camp in, re- in recent weeks in the run-up to Rio, but also in recent months and what was going on behind the scenes in, in the run-up to the Olympics. Do you have to ask questions? Is It, it, it can't... Or is it just the controversy around the judges and the chief inspector? Or do we have to look a little closer to home as well? Well, I, I don't think you, you can say that any of our boxers have underperformed. And I, I don't think we, we can say that they went there underprepared. Like I, personally, I think that's the best boxing team that we could have sent, you, you know. And I, I think if one of them fought out of their skins, they were just very unlucky. You, you know, we, we, we prepare boxers and... Eventually, we hope to get them onto the high performance team. You get onto the high performance unit. You're you're over there with with brilliant coaches, a brilliant backup system, the whole lot in operation to bring them to the next level. Now, it has been very very successful over the years, and personally, I don't think the wheels are going to fall off the bandwagon now overnight. I I don't. But sometimes I would just like to see the boxing mothers stay in the boxing gym. And the business end of it stays upstairs in the office. Now, Ewan McKenna, uh, the sports writer, has has tweeted a short time ago from Rio saying, excuse culture, question mark. It's been uh, O'Reilly factor, Barnes weight, Ward's game plan, Taylor's father, even Conlon blaming the media talking about Walsh. I mean, he's a sports journal. Does he have a point? 
Listen, he's a sports journalist. He gets paid for putting ink on paper. i never seen a paper that wouldn't take ink. It's very, very easy to kick anyone when they're down. I don't think this is a time for sticking the boot in. Putty probably went to the, the, the well once too often. Putty's a, a very, very experienced campaigner. You have to trust the boxer in, in an issue like that. Probably, well, the early morning way in and the early morning contest didn't help him. Probably the humid conditions in that when he had a dehydrate, it wasn't as easy to dehydrate as it is at home. Look, Paddy was just bad luck. Uh, yeah. Katie was robbery. Michael today was late robbery. To be honest with you, contrary to what most of the commentators are saying, I think the first round was pretty close. Mm. I thought Michael dominated the second and definitely was well in control in the third. A wee bit of a sport from uh, Nikitin towards the end. But I, I still think Michael was a comfortable winner. Brian, yesterday after her uh, after her fight, Katie Taylor, the word I would use was, was, was heartbroken and devastated. My, Michael Conlon, though, today, I mean, he's furious. He, he's saying he's done with amateur boxing and he kept referring to cheats. Who are the cheats he's talking about, in your opinion? Oh, cheers. <laughs> I'm not going into that now, but there's no shortage and you don't have to go to Rio to find them neither. Okay. All right, uh, Brian McKeown, boxing coach and member of Cavan Boxing Club. Thanks very much for talking to us uh, on another very sad day for uh, for Irish boxing and uh, Irish uh, Olympians uh, and our involvement in the Olympics indeed. Now, last minister, last week rather, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, confirmed that legislation is being drafted to remove cigarette vending machines from pubs across the country with the aim of moving Ireland closer to a tobacco-free society by 2025. Tobacco vendors, though, warning that ban won't do anything to reduce the number of people people smoking and will instead facilitate the illicit cigarette trade. On The Breakfast Show this morning James Walsh, uh, Director of Tobacco Land, which is Ireland's largest supplier of vending machines, also said that the banning of them won't stop people smoking and that the cigarettes will still be visible even if they're no longer sold in pubs. He also pointed to uh, a loss of jobs in the region of 125 jobs that would go if this move is pushed through by government. Professor Luke Clancy is Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute of Ireland uh, and uh, he is on the line for me now. Um, Luke, is this a necessary step to, I suppose, denormalise smoking in Ireland? I mean, the smoking ban, no one can argue, it has been a roaring success. But the cigarette vending machines just kind of sit there in the corner of a pub and unless you are a smoker, you're, you know, you're, you're not going to them. You probably aren't going to them. But if you are a smoker, it's another 6,000, we're told, machines that you can buy cigarettes from. And there's probably too many places already you can buy cigarettes. This is a, a lethal product that kills half of the people who use it. And yet you can buy it almost in every, certainly every small shop, every uh, supermarket, and at 6,000 outlets with these. Further, if you consider that uh, we are trying to become tobacco-free by 2025, by which is meant less than 5% of the people smoking, well, a lot of the contribution to that will be our young people. And there's been a dramatic fall in smoking among young people in the last 10 or 12 years. And it's interesting here you're saying smoke-free was a great success, which I, of course, agree with. But the very same people were saying that time it wouldn't matter. It was going to deprive the man with his pint from his cigarette and it ruined society, destroy jobs, destroy tourism, etc. So every time there's an initiative, the tobacco industry and their minions 
come out and tell us all the harm it's going to do. And in this case, they say they're going to lose a small number of jobs. Uh, when we're talking about a product that kills 5,000 people in Ireland a year and leaves others, hundreds of thousands, with disability. Well, I mean, and I, I against that, we, we're told it'd be a bad thing to stop these machines. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of publicans, particularly rural publicans, who will still say to this day that their business was decimated in a large part by, obviously, drink driving regulations, but also the smoking ban. Now, while Ireland did lead the way in terms of the, 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 the smoking ban in, in pubs, we are behind the curve in, in this this proposed initiative about vending machines. 15 other European member states, I think, have already enforced similar measures. How successful has it been in those other 15 uh, countries? It has been successful to the degree that is expected, which is that if you don't have these vending machines, then people won't be buying cigarettes at them. Furthermore, it won't prevent an extra opportunity for young people to buy them. And it will, in our case, in Ireland, make sure that we continue the denormalization. You can't imagine that a young person can seriously think that these cigarettes are going to kill them if they say, well, look, we've got little slot machines all over the country to buy them in Mm. and encourage us. So that and plain packaging, again, is another device which we've seen introduced in Australia and now in England and UK, where the very packs that the cigarettes are sold in, we, we now know that tobacco industry were using these to sell them to young people, to get them attracted, to find that they were, think they were good for them, that they were sexy, that they were healthy. And when that's being stripped out, we're told, oh, this is going to destroy the world as we know it. The, the reality is that we're getting out of tobacco. We're trying to stop our children being addicted. We're trying to stop our adults dying from unnecessary deaths early, on average 15 years of life lost and 5,000 people killed. These things are just too big a prize to say, oh, well, it might be inconvenient for a few people if they took these machines out. Now, James Walsh, as I said, of Tobaccoland was on uh, News Talk Breakfast this morning. They've also considering certainly legal action if this move is to be uh, introduced or if attempts are made to introduce it by the government. The plain packaging issue is still not sorted here though, although it was an initiative back I think 2014 there or thereabouts by the then Health Minister James Riley. We don't have them. What's causing the delay there? Is that still mired in legal action too? Well, it's, there is legal action but that's not stopping it because the uh, what the tobacco industry in general do is they make as much fuss as they can beforehand. They lobby extensively. They use their power and their might and their wealth to threaten people not to bring in laws. Then when they do, they frighten them by bringing them to the courts. Invariably, they have lost in these cases, and they've lost in this one at European level and will probably lose here as well. No, it isn't that that's delaying it. It's that it went through the Oireachtas last year, but some technicality had to be dealt with and needs a few minutes' time, we're told, in the doll. And this didn't occur at the end of the last uh, government. And I'm very sad to see that it hasn't happened yet in this government. And really, I would call on Minister Harris to get on with that. This is a huge initiative that we see hugely successful in Australia and which we were doing. And of course, get rid of the vending machines as well. 
Simon Harris really taking up James Riley's mantle in terms of still very focused on having Ireland tobacco free by 2025. Is that realistic though? It, can that be achieved? It could be achieved, but not as we're going. And not if we consider that a few jobs are worth 5,000 lives. But there are things we could do and there are things we're doing and the country is responding. There's been, as I was saying, a dramatic drop in children and young people smoking. Uh, You know, 20 years ago, it was something like 25% of 14 and 15-year-olds were smoking. It's now down to 8 to 10%. So there has been a huge shift and that momentum needs to be increased. If we do everything we can, we may reach this goal by 2025. But if we don't do something else and fast and harder, we won't achieve it. All right, very good. Professor Luke Clancy, Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute of Ireland. Coming up next, a new lobby group plans to fight, makes, plans to fight proposals to make College Green a car-free zone. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Now, Arnott's, Brand Thomas and the Jervis and Ilac shopping centres are among dozens of retailers who've now banded together against this proposed pedestrianisation of College Green in Dublin. They formed a single-issue lobby group, which is called the Dublin City Traders Alliance. It'll be fighting the plans uh, for College Green, partly on the grounds that they believe it'll cost in the region 5,000 jobs from the capital. I'm delighted to be joined in studio now by former Environment Editor of the Irish Times, Frank MacDonald. Frank, you're very welcome to the programme. Let's start with with the actual proposals for College Green. Remind people again what the plan is, what the grand plan is. Essentially, as, pe- as a lot of people will know, uh, the Lewis Cross City project is well underway. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why the centre of the city has been dug up for so long. And, you know, with all these hoardings and fences and all the rest of it. And on foot of that project, um, and it was always inevitable, I think, uh, the future of College Green really needs to be considered because you're going to have um, the Lewis trams going through uh, College Green from north to south and south to north. And um, so... The proposal that the NTA, the National Transport Authority and Dublin City Council came up with was to essentially exclude all east-west traffic from College Green and west-east by implication uh, and to allow the trams, um, you know, relative freedom of movement and and to transform the place itself, which is really visually a mess at Mm. the moment, you know, with all that stuff in it, uh, into a huge pedestrian plaza on the model of European, other European cities. Which would run, I'm presuming, from, say, the bottom of of, of South Great Georgia Street down. No, 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 it wouldn't. No, no, no. This is just really in the area in front of the old Parliament House, the Bank of Ireland and Trinity College. Uh, So what you would have is on the Trinity side, you'd have the Lewis and bus traffic and taxis and so on. Uh, they would be there and then you would not have any traffic coming through from the from the west into College Green or traversing it from the east either, um, except for bicycles. Um, and how they're going to do that, I, I just don't know. Uh, there's going to be a two way bicycle corridor through the pedestrian plaza. Um, and I presume that that's going to have to be uh, well delineated. Now, what Dublin City Council has done is they've commissioned, they've put out to tender a, a design commission for the detailed design of the College Green Plaza. And in the meantime, a lot of opposition has grown up, not just from the groups that you mentioned, uh, who, by the way, it has to be pointed out, all 
are involved in, or uh, I mean, the ones that you mentioned anyway, Arnott's, uh, Brown, Thomas, Jervis, the ILAC Centre, you know, they're attached to multi-storey car parks. And, you know, so they have a vested interest in a way in getting traffic, in uh, getting car shoppers into town. Because they get um, to net, yeah, they get the net result yeah, in, in their they, coffers from the parking Exactly. Fees. And in fact, the parking, uh, the parking meter or the Irish Parking Association, which represents the major car park operators, this month, last year, uh, produced a, a report uh, done by Red's, a Red Sea poll, it was, uh, saying that there could be a 24% fall in, in shopping revenue uh, in the city centre uh, if um, the if the traffic restrictions go ahead. Now that uh, that's based on the notion that um, that 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 people who drive into town, that the users of car parks would travel no more than three hundred to four hundred meters walking distance from the car park to their final destination. I mean, I don't know if that's really true. It just seems very very. I mean, okay, I know that there are a lot of motorists in Ireland who would park in your ear if they got a chance and would park right at the shop that they're going to if they could. But, you know, um, I don't I'm not sure if that's really true. And also, I think it's been shown that that the bulk of shoppers, uh, nearly 60 percent of all shoppers in the centre of Dublin, uh, either travel by on foot, by bicycle, Mm. on Lewis, Dart or buses. Yeah. This figure of 5,000 jobs, which this Dublin City Traders Alliance are pointing to, the potential loss Hmm. of 5,000 jobs, where are they coming up with those figures? Well, I have no idea where they're coming up with those figures. I mean, there was a report about it in the Sunday Times uh, on Sunday last uh, about the formation of this new uh, lobby group. Um, But there's no, I don't think there's, I think, I, I I mean, it seems to me like a figure that's been plucked out of the air, you know, as a kind of an alarmist tactic saying, you know, people are going to shop in the suburbs unless they can drive into town. Uh, And I'm not sure that that's really, really true because the offer in Dublin, the retail offer in Dublin is much more extensive than you'd get in any suburban shopping centre. Oh, I don't know if I agree with you on that, Frank. There's much more varied, much more varied. Tara... Think about all the restaurants, all the cafes, all the different, all the pubs, the bars. But you've the, got your selection you know, of restaurants, so cafes so and bars Not in Blanchardstown really. or no, Liffey Valley yeah, or you Swords. Don't have, or you don't have that much of a selection. You don't have places like, for you know, the extraordinary places like Brother Hubbard and Capel Street and all the rest of it. You don't have them in suburban shopping centres. You basically have English high street retail brands. Uh, Euro trash shopping, in effect, in in the shopping centres in the suburbs. I'm sure that the uh, <coughs> retailers in well, those yeah, uh, but, shopping I mean, centres there's a terrible we'll sameness. There's a terrible sameness about the shopping offer, but there are downsides in relation to the College Green scheme. I mean, obviously, I would, as somebody who who has never driven a car in my life um, and who walks and cycles around the place. Uh, mind you, I do take planes as well and I do take taxis and buses and and the Dart and, and the Lewis trams too. But, you know, uh, I would welcome uh, the plans to turn College Green into a major pedestrian plaza. I've just been uh, on a swing through the south of France and some of the cities there like Montpellier, for example, their public spaces are just extraordinarily good. And the same is true of Lyon. The same is true of Paris. The same is true of most French cities. And, and most and people we, would agree with you on yeah. that and also agree with the fact that we need yes. something yes. like that yeah. in, in Dublin city centre and, and in other cities around the country as well. But can it really be a true pedestrianised zone if you have a Lewis trucking through it and you have buses well, well, and you have, Lewis, you have taxis. Well, the Lewis, the Lewis would, that would really only be on the Trinity College side at the edge of the plaza in effect. Uh, the real conflict, po- possible conflict is between 
a, a two-way bicycle corridor going through the pedestrian plaza and the pedestrians who will be using it. But there's another downside as well, and that and that's one of the reasons why there there really needs to be a comprehensive environmental impact statement done on this whole scheme. You know, so that people can judge the benefits and the disbenefits, as the case may be. And that is the fact that under the proposals that have been put forward, there, uh, Parliament Street to the west of College Green, uh, much further west in front of City Hall there, that would be transformed into a two way bus corridor uh, with up to 1600 to 1700 bus movements per day. Now, when you consider that all of the buses that we have in Dublin shamefully are diesel powered and emit, you know, uh, fine particles, in other words, soot and nitrous oxide and all the rest of it. You know, this is not a good uh, idea and it's something that will just have to be have to be considered in the context of the overall scheme and that we need to look at all of it and not just at College Green alone. It kind of strikes me, Frank, as a, an Irish solution to an Irish problem. Let's have a lovely pedestrianised yeah, plaza and a cafe society, but we'll be choking on diesel smoke from well, all the buses. And the just cafes down the in Parliament Street in particular would be in a, in a, in a very bad way. All right. Very good. Uh, former Environment Editor of the Irish Times, Frank McDonald, will be back with you shortly.